This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. What does it mean to live faithfully unto the Lord and to have our lives in increasing measure ordered according to the Word of God, uh, to be uh, recalibrated uh, into uh, Christ's image so that we would be faithful followers of Jesus? And the Word is one of those uh, things that is so vital for us to understand. Are we aiming at the right things? Are, is the trajectory of our life in the same path and walk, uh, walkway is that of Jesus and, and Christ's uh, followers? Um, this weekend, we were looking at, at our staff officer retreat, uh, what does it mean to be a vital church? How do, we, how do we live into vitality? How do we become a healthy church? And uh, like we've seen in these letters the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches, right? we see Corinthians has its problems. We know that Galatians has its problems. We know that Ephesus had its issues. Like every church has things that it's doing well, areas of incline, and every church has its areas of, of decline, where there are things that we can work on to be a more healthy community. And so when you think about what are the signs or the marks of a healthy church, one is that it's focused on God's Word, that it has an authentic worship life, that it has also uh, a, a care for uh, the members of that congregation, but also an outward focus, looking toward the community to see how it can function well. And one of the aspects of healthy churches is to have a, uh, the, a relational component where congregations live into the values that have been expressed from the scriptures, right? Whenever you, uh, when you're part of a family, every family has certain values that it, it, it uh, buys into. And when a member of the family doesn't live into the values of the family, then the leader of the family is charged with encouraging lovingly that member of the family who may be wayward back into the values and the way that the family has been ordered that are prescribed. And so we're looking at a situation in the church in Corinth where there's a, there's a member of the family or members of the family who have wandered from the values of the family. And so uh, Paul is reminding this, uh, this church to, to continue to walk in the way of Jesus and to love each other enough to be able to confront one another in the way of Jesus. And so we're remembering that the church in Corinth was this uh, vibrant community of people who had come to know Jesus Christ, but were living in a context of materialism, of sexual immorality, uh, and Paul loves them so much he's willing to write this letter to them because he had been with them to encourage them to come to know Christ. He had established this church, and he's writing this letter because he wants them to live in the fullness of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so as we're listening in on that conversation, we're asking ourselves the question, well, what are the areas where we need to recalibrate? Uh, what does it look like for us as a community of faith, as part of the bigger church in Memphis, or as individuals? How do we reorder our lives in light of who Jesus is and what he's done? And so that's the question that we're asking this morning or considering as we think about what does caring correction uh, look like in the church? Uh, will you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for your holy word, uh, that it's a true story of Jesus' life. It's the true story of people who are seeking to follow you by faith to become the people that you want them to be. And we know, Lord, that as they followed you, the word of God spread and it increased and people's lives were changed. The, the brokenhearted came into the family of God and were re-discipled and reparented into a way of living that brought flourishing and hope and joy. And so, Lord, we want to experience that hope and joy. We want to experience that flourishing as well. And so we're asking that you, by your word and through your spirit, would speak to us, 
and that you would give us the courage to obey what you have for us today. That we would know that you love us, but you won't leave us as you found us. So we lift this up to you today, this time, in Jesus' name, amen. I remember when I was probably six or seven years old, I was at my friend's house, uh, Brian Tedonio, and he, uh, he lived down the street from us. He had an older brother and a younger brother, and we would hang out with these guys all the time. And one time I was at his house, and he had this little plastic um, cat, and I wanted it. And so when I left his house, I took it, and I put it in my pocket, and it was mine. I stole it from my friend. And that night, I, when I was home, uh, I was getting ready for bed, and I pulled it out of my pocket, and my mom said, where'd you get that? I just felt a sense of, of guilt, because I knew it just didn't happen to find its way into my pocket. I knew that I had taken it, and I wanted it. Now, why I wanted a little plastic cat, I have no idea, but I did want it, and I stole it. And so my mom asked me, and she confronted me, and she said, did you, did you take that from Brian? I said, yes. She says, you have to go back and give it back to Mr. Tedonio. <laughs> so we walked down the street, and I think I was probably weeping, just anxious feeling of guilt and shame, and I knocked on the door, and Mr. Tedonio answered the door. And I said, Mr. Tedonio, I stole this cat, and I'm sorry. And he was like, who cares? What is this plastic cat? Is this is a piece of junk. But he said, thank you, Matt. And I, I walked home. And I've never forgotten uh, that first uh, major theft of my life. <clears throat> <clears throat> the first of many. Uh, no. <clears throat> uh, but my mom confronted me with the action. She, she knew that it was not mine, that I had taken it. And while the, the, the crime was probably insignificant because it was a little plastic cat figurine thing, uh, it, was still, it was still wrong. And my mom was loving enough to me that she didn't condemn me, but she said, this needs to be dealt with. You need to, to go back and give the cat back to the Tedonios because this isn't how we operate in our family. These are the values of our family, and stealing is not one of them. And so you need to go and confess and be restored unto the Tedonio family, which, which I am to this day. And, uh, but it was something that she, my mom was saying, we need to deal with this problem because this isn't how we operate. These are not our values. Well, this morning we're looking at a situation where uh, the Apostle Paul is doing just that. Uh, he is uh, reminding the people of Corinth what the values of the family are, and he's calling them out uh, in, in a loving way. Let's look at verse 1 of, uh, of chapter 5. We're going we're gonna to go through the whole chapter again today, and I'll just kind of go along as we go. But listen to what he says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Verse 2, and if you've got your Bible, it should be open. Read with me, verse 2. And you were arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So, so here we understand, okay, what is the problem that is going on that Paul has heard about? Evidently, wherever Paul is living when he writes this letter, remember, he knows these people, he's heard about the situation, and he says, it is actually reported to you that, number one, there's two problems. First of all, that there is sexual immorality happening with the life of your church, and also your acceptance of this sin. While the main thrust of this passage is how to deal with uh, disobedience 
and to exercise church discipline, it's important to note what the violation is. Specifically, Paul says it is actually reported. It says actually in here, which uh, the word inserted there just kind of gives us a sense of the shock that Paul has. That like, it's, this is really happening in the life of your church. Are you serious? And, and the way that the, the, the words are formed, uh, we, we see that this is not just a one-time event that has occurred, but rather it is something that is ongoing, such that it, Paul says, not even the pagans, not even the non-believers would be operating in this manner. So it's a sense of shock and dismay and concern that Paul has that he's going to include this really near the beginning of his letter. And what does it say? He says, a man has his father's wife. Now, Paul doesn't describe the woman as the man's mother, but rather his father's wife, indicating that it's the man's stepmother. And as I mentioned, the sense of the words isn't that it's just a one-time occurrence, but it's an ongoing relationship. And to make it worse, not only is this relationship happening in the life of the church, but he says that you are arrogant, you, you are prideful. You see, the, first, uh, the Corinthians, they don't have a concern about it. And Paul really does. And Paul says this is something that you shouldn't be tolerating, but rather you should be lamenting and dealing with. Uh, the word that Paul uses for sexual immorality is porneia, uh, which sounds familiar, and it should, but it means a lot of different things. It means fornication, homosexuality, adultery, or prostitution. And it, and it reflects the Old Testament idea that any sexual expression outside the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman is considered by God's word to be a sin. And while this specific example is exceedingly egregious, all porneia is forbidden. And what's interesting to me is that in the church today, we kind of pick and choose which porneo we'll, we'll be okay with, right? Uh, some churches say, well, homosexuality is the bad one. But adultery, well, that just kind of happens. And we're not going to worry about that or deal with that one. Um, incest to us would be seen as, well, that's just outside the bounds. But, but fornication, sex outside of marriage, is something that, well, you know, it's just kind of the way things are these days. But Scripture teaches us plainly that all sexual sin is just that, that it's sin, and it should be dealt with. And listen, we know that many people from the Corinthian church had come out of a lifestyle because they didn't know that is very different from what Paul is talking about, right? And remember this, that Paul is speaking to this church full of people who likely had either uh, had them, they themselves been involved in the cult worship of the temple of Aphrodite, involved in the world's oldest profession, or were family members of, or maybe even children of, or parents of, people who were living in this way. And yet they had experienced the grace of God in such a powerful way. They had seen a better way of life. They had experienced the love and kindness of Jesus who says to them, there is a better way for you to live that leads to your ongoing flourishing. And there's nothing in your past that you've ever done, that you've ever said, or that you've ever thought that my grace won't cover. And the good news for us is that he's saying the same exact things to us. Is that for those of us who live in a similar culture, who have come out of that culture, who still struggle in many ways with that culture, 
Jesus, through Paul, is saying to us, you have come now into my family. You've, been, you've experienced grace. You've experienced mercy. There's nothing that you can do or have done that can separate you from my love. So don't live under guilt about what you did in the past. Uh, don't live under shame. But remember who you are in me. Because I've poured out my grace for you and I love you. And you're forgiven. Now in light of that, in light of what I've done for you, I want you now to live into my way of life. This way of flourishing that will lead you to joy and satisfaction and hope. Whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're divorced, whether you're a widow or widower, wherever you are in your life, single, married, whatever, there's a way to find life and joy. And it's the way of Jesus. So remember that Paul is, is, has that context in mind when he's speaking to these folks who've come out of uh, a tough way of life. But what Paul is saying is, don't go back to it. Don't go back into that way of life when you've experienced the grace of God and Jesus. Live fully in the presence of the Lord. That's good news. So Paul then says in verse 3, he's giving them some guidance on what do you do? What do you do in this situation? Verse 3 says, For though absent in body, I am present in the Spirit. And if And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The Corinthians should be living as though Paul is with them. Uh, Their father in the faith that he described himself as before. You can't, uh, it's as though if, if I had gone home with that glass cat in my, in my pocket and no one had ever confronted me, maybe I thought, well, I just got away with it and this is actually a good way of life. But my mom lovingly confronted me and said, this is not how we live. And here's the thing, even though Paul is not with them physically, his spirit is with them and so also is the spirit of Jesus. And he's saying, live according to the spirit of Jesus. Just because I'm not around, you've got to remember who it is you are and how to live as you are. They should be living as though Paul was with them. So here he is reminding them as a community of people who are gathered. He's saying, my spirit is with you, but more importantly, Jesus is present. So you, my brothers and sisters, need to be living in accordance with the values of the family. Seek to be faithful to Christ And so here what Paul says, this is how we deal with this. Verse 5, again, I read it. Uh, Deliver this man to Satan. He's reestablishing his authority there. And he's asking them, essentially, why have you not dealt with this matter on your own? And since you haven't, I want to instruct you. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So this passage really isn't about sexual immorality, even though that's the reason why Paul is talking to them. It's about church discipline. So what is that? What is church discipline? Well, maybe you are just thinking that church discipline is for judgy church people to be judgmental. And let me say, of course, there are situations and there are instances of church discipline that are handled harshly. And there is abuse. There are instances where prideful people with heavy hands deal with those who are caught in sin 
those who are struggling, and they are made to feel alienated from the community. Yes, that's a real thing that happens. There are times when discipline is handled poorly. But that doesn't mean that discipline should not be exercised. Simply because someone handled discipline in an improper way doesn't mean that church discipline shouldn't be uh, exercised. Verse 6, he says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So what is leaven? Leaven is that yeast which causes fermentation or expansion in the dough. In the Mosaic law, leaven represents sin or corruption. So the law forbade any kind of grain offering that had leaven in Leviticus. There was no yeast allowed to be burned on the altar in any kind of sacrifice. The grain offering for Aaron and his sons, who were the priests, uh, was also not to contain any leaven because it was to be eaten in a holy place. So leaven in the Bible indicates sin and corruption. And what Paul is saying is if you don't deal with this, if you as individuals and as a church community don't deal with this matter, it's going to spread through the whole congregation. And eventually, you'll be right back where you started, living as cult, prostitute, temple worshipers. And that's not the life that you want to live. You'll have broken relationships. Your families will be distorted. And your church will lose its power to transform the culture. You will have no voice with the culture. And let me say this to you, friends. Hasn't the church in many ways lost its voice to be able to speak to the moral issues of the day? When so many people in the church, including leaders and pastors of the church, are engaged in sexual sin? I mean, how is it that we have any voice to say to anybody, well, here's what you should do, if we ourselves don't have our own house in order? Paul's saying you've got to deal with this. And that means we have to deal with this. And if you don't, you're going to have a big problem. So I don't like Home Depot. I'm going to confess that to you now because I don't like fixing things or working on things. I'm not good at it, and I don't have tools or time or know-how. And so if I have the know-how, I have to learn it, and I have other things that I want to spend doing, and then I have to borrow the tools, and then if you finally do it, it doesn't actually look good, and then you forget 10 years later when you have to do it again. So we have this little thing on the front of our house. It's not a porch, but there are columns, and there's like a little thing that you could stand on. There's a window behind it, but the window is completely blocked, so you can't get from inside the house onto the porch. It's just a decorative thing. And some years ago, we had some guys that replaced some wood on the front of our house and painted our house, because, you know, how houses are. They're just a giant pit of things, coal you can pour money into. And so we're fixing the, up the front of the house. And somehow, I think, not, I can't prove this, but I think when they fixed it, a little bit of water from the, from the flow of things got to where it was going onto this porch. And so then the paint was kind of coming down. And I should have dealt with it. I'm sorry I didn't deal with it, Brandy. <laughs> it's like when your car is making a weird noise and you just turn up the radio. I bet I'm a turn-up-the-radio kind of guy when it comes to fixing the house, I'll confess. And so I went up there this year, because this is the little main area where we hang our Christmas lights, and I stood on it, and it went... <laughs> and so long story short, the water had seeped in and gotten in, and so we, we've got to replace it now, 
or fix it. So if anybody wants to go with me to Home Depot today, I'll be going, no. We're trying to figure this out. But here's the problem is that there's water dripping in there, and I didn't deal with the water. And because of that, the whole thing really needs to come down. And that stinks. And it's like sin in your life or in the church. It's not fun to deal with. You'd rather just turn up the radio or just kind of ignore it. But man, if you don't, it spreads and it does damage. And so what Paul is saying to us and to the Corinthians is that don't not deal with it. Man, nobody wants to deal with it. Like, I get that. It's uncomfortable, right? We're Southern. We don't do this. But Paul says if you don't, in a loving way, you're going to have problems. You're going to have problems. Because look at what Paul is asking them to do instead. Look at verse 8. He said there's an alternative, right? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. That's what we need in our relationships, right? Because when there's unconfessed sin in a community, it does damage to relationships. And here's the thing, if it's not confronted by the leadership of the church and by the people who are called to serve in love, then everyone thinks, well, this is just how it is. And that's what's happened in the life of the Corinthian church. And so this is why church discipline is an important matter. And I don't know if you know this, maybe you haven't read our book of order in the EPC, but all of our elders and deacons, as they go through training, are required to read it. There are three sections in the book of order. Right? There's a book of worship, which orders our worship life, which talks to us about how we are to function, how we serve communion, how we focus on God's word, how we should sing praises. It gives us a lot of guidance on that. There's a book of government, which tells us how do we order ourselves? How often do we need to have session meetings? And what are the matters that we can come to that are of concern in the life of our church? So there's worship, government. Does anybody know the last one? Church discipline. There's a whole section on church discipline. And if it's one of three sections, it's something that is important for us as a community. So I want to just share with you a couple of things that the Book of Order says. Our book that is our governing document says the purpose of discipline is to maintain the honor of God, to restore the sinner, and to remove the offense from the church. Listen to this. This is important because this is my job. This is what it says my job is. Teaching elders, Pastor Matt, must instruct the officers and congregation in the use of discipline and jointly practice it in the context of the congregation and the courts of the church. The courts are the session, the presbytery, and the General Assembly. I have to do it. It says must. So here's me doing it. Let the record show. It's only been 14 years since I did a sermon on church discipline, right? So there are three reasons for church discipline. Contempt, heresy, and immorality. Contempt is willful conduct done in deliberative disrespect of a court of the church, the constitutional documents of the church, or the officers of the church acting in their official capacities. Heresy is the expressed or implied denial openly taught and obstinately maintained of one or more of the essential doctrines of Christianity. So false teaching against the essential doctrines of our faith. And then immorality is conduct inconsistent with the biblical standards for conduct, including but not limited to bickering, 
brawling, debauchery, drunkenness, gossiping, hatred, idolatry, impurity, slander, and sexual immorality such as adultery, fornication, homosexual practice, and bestiality. That's what the purpose of church discipline is for, and that's what the, the, the times when we are called to exercise church discipline. Now, the book of order gives us the formal aspect of church discipline. When someone files a grievance or a complaint, and it gives us the whole pattern of how we're called to exercise, that's the formal part. But there's also an informal aspect of church discipline that we exercise all the time with one another, right? That we uh, help encourage one another to walk in faith in loving ways, right? If someone that you know that you love is falling away from faith or is engaging in activity that is not healthy, you, because you love them, engage in informal church discipline by going to that person and saying, hey, are you doing okay? Because I've noticed that you haven't been engaged in the life of the community. Or I've seen on a number of occasions where, you know, you go from having one or two to seven. And I just, I wanted to talk to you about it. That's informal church discipline that comes from a spirit of love. The formal church discipline comes from a spirit of love as well. And so we're engaging in this all the time. So we want to have a, a formal and informal component of church discipline in our, in our life. And we also want to have a formal and informal uh, component of encouragement in our life, right? We want to be investing in people and pouring in and saying, hey, you know, I noticed that when you led that, it was fantastic. You did a great job overseeing that ministry. Or I've noticed you behind the scenes always being there to serve and to care. You're just ready to be, to be willing to encourage people. We've had formal declarations from our session where we've said, this person has done such a great job on this, this, and this. I remember we did one for Gene, a formal declaration. And we read it. And we said, thank you to Gene. We gave one to Didi recently. We gave one to Don Pig for his work on the construction project. We want to say thank you and make a public proclamation that says, whereas, like, 15 times in there, whereas this person has done this, and whereas this person has done this. So we want to have both those kinds of things. That's all part of church discipline. Because if we're only calling out bad behavior, we're not focusing on the positive things, that can become unhealthy or negative as well. Here's what else the Book of Order says about church discipline. As a revelation of God's holy will, scriptural law is the basis of all discipline. Therefore, proper disciplinary principles as set forth in the scriptures must be followed before any charge alleging a personal offense can be brought before a court. And what this is saying is that before you do formal discipline, you need to have informal discipline. When a charge of personal offense is brought before any court of the church, the, par the party bringing the charge must include a certified statement detailing how the principles outlined in Matthew 18, 15 and Galatians 6 have been met. So, what this is saying is before you file a complaint or a grievance, what you're supposed to do is to work through this informal church discipline, which is Matthew 18. Well, let me read that to you. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Who's the church? The church here are the elders at Woodland who bear the responsibility to help navigate conflicts within the church. And he says, if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
So that's one of the aspects of this informal discipline. So what this is saying essentially is the beginning of discipline is if your brother or sister sins against you, it is your responsibility to go to that person and to share with them what the sin is. Notice that it doesn't say, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and talk about it with someone else. Go and unload or vent on someone else who actually has no opportunity to really make a difference in the conflict. No, it says to go to the person. The first step that we're called to make if a person sins against us is to go to the person. Now, notice it doesn't say if your feelings got hurt by the person. Um, your choices are, and hey, if the person hurts your feelings, you still can go to them. You're not to go to the other person. You're to go to that person, right? Because what happens if you go to someone else? You're creating a triangle. And you may feel better about venting, but the person with whom you've just shared doesn't really have any power to make any change or to say, oh, I'm sorry. And so when you go to that person as an individual, you keep it private and you have an opportunity to be restored. And what happens if your brother agrees, then you are restored to that brother or sister. Now, look, let me say also that if there is a major power differential in the relationship or there's a situation of abuse, this is a different, we have a different process to go through. So if you're in an abusive relationship, then going to the person may be unhealthy. If you're in an abusive relationship, please come and talk to me because I want to help you in that. But those are different kinds of situations. But think about this. If the conflict that we experience in the church, if we go to the person then we're able to resolve it with that person. What's the next step? If the person isn't uh, convinced or they don't repent, then what we do, we take another person with us and we say, hey, look, you know, I talked about uh, this with you a week ago and it didn't seem like that you were really understanding where I'm coming from and so I wanted to bring my friend to come and just talk about this because they love you and I love you, but I felt really hurt by this and I feel like you sinned against me and so I want to talk about it. Right? There's this process that we go through and then if that doesn't work, and if the conflict is major, then we can say to the session, to a session member, I have this conflict. I'm wanting to work through this conflict. I need help. And if it's a private conflict, it will be kept private. In other cases where the conflict is public, then it potentially could be made public so that the whole church knows that it's being addressed and that reconciliation is being sought. And if there is uh, no resolution, then the appropriate consequences are divvied up. But that's the process that we have. And look what, he also, what it, the Book of Order also says. We need to follow Galatians 6.1. What does that say? Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This is so vital if we want to create a culture where conflicts are being handled in healthy ways, then those who hear about the conflicts, who have been invited to take action and to enter into discipline, need to do so with great humility, with great gentleness. Because Paul recognizes the temptation it is for there to be a judgmental spirit and to be a harsh tone toward those who are experiencing difficulty, right? These examples of church abuse that are unhealthy. We've got to be really, really careful about how we go about doing that. And it's sense with fear and trembling. But that doesn't mean that you don't move forward to bring resolution. So the process being, begins uh, informally, but then it, there are these steps. There are these steps that we take. And think about the, the life and health of your family, of your workplace, of your church, if you were using Matthew 18, 15 as your way of resolving conflict. 
Think about, because you know how hard it is when someone comes to you and just says all this stuff about another person. You're like, what do I do? I know about it. That person feels better, but the conflict's not resolved. It would be a great thing if we were to begin practicing this in our own lives. And let's say you go to them, and then you take witnesses. But if he does not listen, take two others along with you. That allows for all the charges to be heard, it says. Hey, we spoke to you about this, but nothing has changed, and we care about this matter because it's a, it's a hurtful thing. A lot of the conflict that we experience, sometimes you just have to say, I'm just going to forgive that person and move on. It's not a big issue. I'm not going to take it up. I'm not going to talk about it. And, and if that's where you are, that's a good thing. But if it's not where you are, then you can use this process to go through it. Verse 17 of Matthew 18 says, if he refuses to listen, tell him to the church. So this then allows the, the oversight of the spiritual leaders to humbly, gently engage in this process. But what if they don't repent? What if they don't apologize? What if they don't quit the affair? What if they don't stop stealing? What if they don't quit gossiping? What if they don't stop with drunkenness? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, you're to deliver this man or woman to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That doesn't sound very reconciliatory, does it? But why do we do that? He goes on to say, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See, the the purpose of discipline is to restore relationships with God, with self, with others. We're not just trying to modify people's behavior, say, stop doing the bad thing. Because the behavior is a result of a heart that's not in line with God and not in line with others. So discipline is this effort to, to restore the relationships, to restore the heart, to make amends for the action, to work through those difficulties. And this is to be done in the authority of Jesus, in his name, not simply on the authority of the church, not because one person says, this is what we're going to do, but as an act of humility before the Lord in a community. See, it just says to us that being a member of a church is a serious thing, that we're called to be in relationship, to, to mutually submit to one another. But what does it mean to deliver a person unto Satan? It doesn't mean to deprive this person of salvation because it's not the church that grants salvation. When a Christian is in fellowship with the Lord in the local church, he's enjoying a special protection from Satan because he's part of the community in the family of God. And if you withhold that, if you excommunicate someone from that, you dismiss them from the community, you disallow them from partaking of the Lord's Supper, then the hope is that they will see the error of their ways because they will desire the fellowship of the people of God. That they would see, wow, what I've done is wrong. And these people that I know love me are calling me to account for this behavior. And look at what he says in verse 9. He's really uh, sincere about this. Verse 9 goes on. He says, And I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such one. And that's pretty intense. He's saying if this person claims to be a brother or sister in Christ and they're not repenting through this disciplinary process, then you shouldn't even associate with them. Don't even eat with them. 
Now, what Paul probably is saying is don't become entangled in relationships with them. Don't be involved with them. He's not necessarily saying cross the street if they're walking by on the sidewalk. You can still talk to the person, but he's saying the purpose of discipline is to dismiss them or to divest them from the community so they'll see their need for it. And that's a pretty big deal. Why? Because we want to see that person return. We long for their return to the community of faith so they would be restored. And not only that, not to just be able to sit with us and worship, but to be restored in relationship with the person that they've harmed. This is not just about two different people sitting in the same room. It's about every person in the room being reconciled to one another. And you know how reconciliation works in your own life. It's a give and a take. There's forgiveness. There's sorrow. There are tears. There's conversation. But just because you're in the same room doesn't mean you're reconciled. And Paul is saying, don't associate with them. But notice that he says, only if this person's a believer, right? Paul wants us hanging out with drunkards and swindlers and fornicators as much as possible if they're not Christian. We're called to love those people and to care for them because that's what we once were. He says to go out into the streets and on the, in the neighborhoods, in the businesses, to meet with them and to love them, to show them the way of Jesus. But when someone becomes a follower of Christ, they should know better. And if they don't, this process is a blessing to restore them. It's not easy. It's not popular. But it's part of what we are called to do. When I was in the church, we were in the church in St. Petersburg, uh, there was a man that I didn't really get to know too much because uh, before I got there, he had been having an affair. He was an elder. And the church went through a process where they uh, confronted him and talked with him about his affair, and he said that he was unwilling to leave the woman that he had uh, entered into a new relationship with, despite the fact that his wife was a member of the church and his children were there. And so in most of the years where we were there for three years, uh, I only met him occasionally. And my experience of him was just a harsh, bitter, scoffing person who was really sarcastic. But the church had taken action to, to, to say, this is not what we stand for and not who we're going to be. And we love you, but you can't do that here. Now, after we left and moved here, uh, what I learned over time was that he eventually was restored to his wife uh, he, was, uh, he left the, the other woman, and he became the father and husband that God had called him to be. Uh, he was back into the life of the church. He was not permitted to serve as an elder, but he was restored. It was a win. It was a great, uh, uh, wonderful thing to see this happen. And it was through this discipline process. Now, that doesn't mean that it always works out that way. It certainly doesn't. But we see, if we read through First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, which is another letter, it's likely that this man repents, the sexually immoral brother, he repents and he's restored into the fellowship. Now, is it hard to enter? Was it, was it hard for my mom to confront me about the plastic cat? Probably not. It's hard when your friend is engaging in behavior that you know is wrong and going to that person and saying, hey, man, this is not going to be something that we're going to do. And we love you. It's even harder to say, you are not allowed to come because we love you. But that's what the Bible prescribes for us. Why? So that there's opportunity for restoration, for reconciliation, and for the person's very soul. Because I know from personal experience 
that people who are not confronted with their sin think that what they're doing is okay, and they go living about their merry way, and they never come back to the church. Is it hard? Absolutely. Do we need to do it with humility and with some sense of fear? Of course. But it is our responsibility. So here's what I want to say to you now. Where are you on that informal or formal church discipline process? Is there someone in your life that has sinned against you? Or maybe you're trying to determine if it was a sin or not. Someone has hurt you. Maybe you need to wrestle with, you know what, I just need to forgive that person and move on. And if that's where you are, that's a good place to be. I just need to forgive and move on. I'm not going to bring it up to them or anyone else. But maybe it's something that has just stuck with you. And you feel like you need to say, I've got to work through this. And so your first step is to say to this person, I need to talk to you about something. I felt hurt when you did this, and I want to talk with you about it. And my hope is if someone comes to you, that you'll be open enough to say, I hear what you're saying. Help me understand where you're coming from so that I can be restored to you. And let me just say to you, if there's something that I have done or I haven't done, and you want to talk to me about it, I would love to talk with you about that so that I can be restored to you. If there's a sin that I have committed that I don't know about and you need to talk with me about it and you feel like you need to bring someone with you, I would gladly hear that because I want to be restored to you if I'm not restored to you. That we want to create the kind of culture where we say, if someone comes to us, we say, thank you so much for sharing with me that our relationship isn't as it should be. And I want to confess that I I did that or I didn't know that and I want to be restored to you, that we would have that kind of community and fellowship. So maybe you either need to forgive or to go to confront or maybe you're in that second spot where it's take someone with you. Maybe someone says to you, will you go with me to so-and-so? You need to go with them and to say, how can I walk with you through this? And for us as a session, as leaders of the church, we need to be ready and willing. If someone comes to us and says, this has occurred, I've gone through these steps, I don't know what to do, help me. We need to be ready to care for them. And if you feel like you're in a place right now in your life where it's just not been able to be resolved and you want to come to an elder, I encourage you to do that. What would it look like for us to have total reconciliation in all of our relationships and be that kind of community? It'd be great. Most of the stuff never gets to a disciplined, formal process, most of it. But boy, if we can just dwell in this area where we're either forgiving or uh, going right to the person, that would create a super healthy community, and it'd be a wonderful thing. And guess what? This celebration, right, the unleavened bread, the Passover lamb, it would come to be upon our family and our community. And then not only that, as we experience it, we would be able to share it. Think about in your own family right now. Is there conflict in your family? (laughs) I know the answer because you've got a family, (laughs) right? Yes. So what would this look like to you, for you as a a believer in your family to go and to say, I want to be reconciled to you. And here's my part. Here's the part that I have. I have not acted with kindness. I have spoken harshly. I have provoked you and I'm sorry. Man, that would be a great thing just the healing of relationships all over this this community. I know I'm going long and I'm sorry, but this is something that we need to talk about. And uh, we want to be open to obeying Jesus' words uh, to do this because it leads to flourishing and reconciliation. And it doesn't always, but the path for reconciliation is through the gospel that we have been given. And we are those who are called to do this. It's our responsibility because we have this truth and we have this good news. So let us... Use what we have 
and to make things whole through Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.